Acts chapter 12. The chapter starts out with, now about that time. Okay, so that begs the question, now about what time? (laughs) Well, I'll back up to chapter 11, verse 27, and we'll actually start there because it sets the context for what's going to happen in chapter 12. It says, and in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a a Syrian uh, seaport city north of Israel. And the Holy Spirit had been poured out at Antioch. Uh, A guy by the name of Barnabas uh, was there and he was from Cyprus, but he was over in Antioch. And he goes up, travels up to Tarsus and grabs this guy by the name of Paul, actually Saul, now converted to Paul, brings him down to Antioch. And then uh, says one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, uh, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. And this they also did and sent sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So things have been happening. The spirit has been poured out. Now, if you look uh, in chapters 10 and 11, we see that Peter ends up going to a place called Joppa, which is, again, it's a coastal city. It's now Tel Aviv. That's uh, ancient Joppa is in the same place where Tel Aviv is now. And he goes to a place, uh, a guy by the name of Simon the Tanner, and he meets with a, a gentleman by the name of Cornelius. And that's where the spirit is poured out. And the, actually the church has expanded now to include the Gentiles, the Gentile being anybody that's not Jewish. Because up until then, it's been, remember, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, He said, Jesus told them, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, which is the surrounding area, in Samaria, which is the area north. I call it the bad neighborhood (laughs) because he wants to reach everybody. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this section is going to, we're going to finish out this section this morning. And from here forward, Peter actually drops off the scene And we're going to see the uttermost parts come into play with Paul's missionary journeys, uh, first with Barnabas and then with Silas and and so on. So this is a pivot point for the church. However, God's going to do some things and allow some things to happen in order to set that up. So here we have Paul and Barnabas. They've traveled to Jerusalem with this offering from the Gentile churches in Asia Minor. And, and they're presenting that to the elders uh, there at the church. It says, so at about that time that this was happening, Herod the king stretched out his hand to, to harass some from the church. Now, this is a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa I. All right. Uh, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. And if you remember, Herod the Great was the guy that was in charge When Jesus was born, he was the one that sent out and had all the firstborn kids killed. And, and, and he was, he was a, he was a madman, but he was also a brilliant architect. He was a builder. He built cities and he built magnificent. He built the temple. It's called Herod's temple. Uh, he, 
he built a, a beautiful seaport city called Caesarea Maritima. And we're going to see that come into play here in the text this morning. Uh, but he was also, as I mentioned, he was nuts. Uh, he was so jealous and so insecure about holding on to the power that he had as the ruler in this region of the world that he started killing his relatives. He killed a number of his wives. He killed some of his sons. He had one son by the name of Aristobulus and Aristobulus had had a son by the name of Agrippa. And that's the Agrippa, the King Agrippa that we see here. Now, when Aristobulus was killed by his father, Agrippa went off to Rome to be raised there. And he was mixing with the royalty and all of that in Rome. And as he grew up, he got into trouble. He got into financial ruin. There was a whole lot about his life that, in extra biblical information, Josephus primarily, that, that talks about him and, and that uh, at one point, uh, an emperor was raised up named Caligula. Now, Caligula was an interesting guy. He hated the church. He hated Christians. And so he raised up Herod, Herod Agrippa, to, and he put him over the regions of Syria and Galilee. So Agrippa gets a land to rule. Uh, he's one of the Herods, and that's what Herods do. Now, they were kind of half-breed uh, Jewish to an extent. I mean, Herod had favor with the people. Agrippa had favor with the people because his grandmother had been a Maccabean princess. His wife was a descendant of the Maccabees. Now the Maccabees, they were known in Israel as sort of a royal family. They, they were the ones who prior to the first century and all the things we see going on there, that they were part of the revolt that threw off the Greeks and, and, a whole history there with the, the Maccabees and the Idumeans and all of that. I'm not going to go into all the history. But essentially, Agrippa was well-connected. He was connected by marriage. So he wanted to curry favor with the Jews. So he had some Jewish heritage, but he was really a puppet of Rome. Don't make any mistake about it. He, he would go to the feasts, the national feasts. He would go and, and he would go to Jerusalem and act like a Jew. He'd go sacrifice at the temple and do all that. It was all political. But then he wanted to live like a Roman, so he would go down to Caesarea Maritima and live like a Roman. And we'll see both sides of that in the text this morning. So here's this guy, Herod Agrippa, uh, grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the guy that took off John the Baptist's head, uh, well connected to the Jews, wanted to curry favor with them, and so he started acting politically. Not always a good idea. So it says that he stretched out his hand, and that's a figure of speech. It's, to say, it's like we would say the long arm of the law, figure of speech, saying that the law projecting power into my situation. The long arm of the law came and picked him up, kind of a thing. So he stretches out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, this isn't just harassing like the religious leaders had done with Peter and John in, in Acts chapter 5. Remember, they took them and they arrested them and they harassed them, uh, had them, <laughs> had them, uh, scorched and then sent him back out. And then Peter gets out of jail and Peter and John, the, the angel lets him go. We'll talk about that. This is 
to cause bodily harm. That's this word harass. It means that he is serious about persecuting now the church. And this is the first persecution, the first great persecution that breaks out against the church. So he stretches out his hand to harass him in the church. And in verse 2, he says, And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Folks, we read this and we can just breeze right over it. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Next. But you got to think about this. What would have been like for you if you were part of the church in Jerusalem, which was coming under heavy pressure anyway, to know that, that God had raised up pillars in the church, these apostles that had been part of the group with Jesus. This is James, not the brother of Jesus. We'll see him come into play a little later here in the text. But this is James, John's brother, one of the sons of thunder. This is James, the guy that when Jairus' daughter, the, the, he was the, the, uh, the head of the synagogue in, in Capernaum, when his daughter was dead, that Jesus invited some of his men in to go and to witness him raising Jairus' daughter. from the, This is James. This is James that was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus that was part of his inner circle. This is James that was in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus poured out his heart to the Father, saying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I mean, this is an important, prominent pillar in the church. And now he's dead. Think about how that would affect you if you were part of the church there. Wouldn't that leave you scratching your head thinking, God, what are you doing? What, what is happening here? Wait a minute. He was doing some really good work. He was really reaching out. He was being mightily used of the Lord and now he's gone. This would have been, this would have really stretched a lot of the people in that day. So here it says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now that's an interesting thing too. And again, in extra biblical literature in the Talmud, which is the Jewish interpretation of the law, there are instructions for what you do with a heretic. Now the Romans' primary method of execution was crucifixion. The Jews' primary method of execution was stoning. So what's this thing with the sword? And, and the, again, the Talmud, and, and, uh, again, it may or may not apply. I believe it probably does. The Talmud says that you don't, you don't give them an honorable execution. You simply lop off their head if they're labeled as a heretic. And these guys, the church, in the eyes of the Jews of that day, were looked upon as heretics. They were ones, they were the rabble-rousers. They were these hicks from Galilee, came down here and instituted this new religion. You know, who do they think they are? That was the attitude, the prevalent attitude of the Jews during this time. And Herod knew it. So as a political move, he goes and he has James executed. Publicly, more than likely publicly, because we're going to see that he wants to do the same thing with Peter, takes off his head. Verse 3, and, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So, do you guys know what a political hack is? It's a common term today. 
And that's where somebody will do something either immoral or unethical for political gain. That's, and, and I know, shock and awe that, that anybody would ever do that, especially in the name of God. Herod is a political hack. He sees, wow, that went pretty good for me. I mean, the Jews are liking me more because I took off this guy's head. I'm going to go after the rest of them. I'm going to, I know there's another guy and they've been telling me about this Peter guy, very outspoken, a leader in the church. I'm going to take care of him too. So, uh, he sees that it pleased the Jews. So he seizes Peter. And it was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, the Passover was the, the beginning of the spring feasts in Israel. Beginning the day after Passover and for the next week were what were known as the days of unleavened bread. So this is a high holy season for the Jews. Herod doesn't want to have this guy executed. I mean, think about it. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews that have made pilgrimages from all over the empire to come into Jerusalem during this time. And and they look at this as a very sacred time. And so he knows that if he's going to score any political points, it's not going to be during the feast. It's not going to be during the days of unleavened bread. He could easily start an uprising. He could easily turn the people against him by doing that. So what he does is he says, lock him up. Get a hold of him and lock him up. So when he had arrested him, verse 4, and put him in prison and delivered him uh, him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover, after the days of unleavened bread. So... It says that he's delivered to four squads of soldiers. Now, a squad is, that's four guys, okay? Uh, Why would he appoint 16 men to guard this guy? Well, if you look back, you see in chapter 5 that Peter and John are in jail. And an angel actually breaks them out. They go looking for them in the morning, the, the soldiers, because the religious leaders have sent them to go get them and bring them before them. And they go and they're not there. And the angel has said, all right, you're all done here. We're taking you out of here. Get back out into the temple square, the temple courts, and begin sharing the gospel again. And so these guys, they're out there preaching instead of sitting in a jail cell. Right? I don't know if Herod became aware of that. There's a good chance that he did because he's not taking any chances here. Four squads of soldiers. Now, this, the soldiers had six-hour shifts during the day. So there would be... And what they would do is they would chain the prisoner between two guards. The guy has chains on each arm. And he's got a guard on his right, a guard on his left. And then there's two guards outside guarding the door. And so they had six-hour shifts during the day. But at night, they had four three-hour watches. All right? And we're going to see here, as, as the text unfolds, as we look at this, that at the fourth watch of the night, things start to shake loose in a major way. So here we have four squads of soldiers, Peter being locked up, and 
uh, it says here that he was therefore kept in prison in verse 5, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. That's a pivot point, folks. But constant prayer. Now that word constant is also the word that's used for fervent or urgent. They saw what happened to James. And they're thinking, now Peter has been taken away. He's been carted off to jail. And they're assuming that the same thing's going to happen to him. And they start to pray. And I don't believe that there's any mistake when God anointed Luke to write these words that he would connect Peter's arrest with the people praying. And I want you to hold on to that. That's a very important aspect of looking at how this unfolds. Because the people begin to pray immediately. They're still freaked out. They still are seeing the empty seat where James was. And they know that Peter is a prominent, he's a pillar in the church, greatly used of God. Uh, and, and they know that this is not good. This is, this is real trouble. The Greek word for constant there is ectonis. And, and again, it means fervent or focused prayer. Um, I think about my recent medical woes. Somebody was asking me about it before the service. Uh, and I know uh, part of when I, when I was in the hospital and I started coming out of it 10 days in or whatever, and I began to get reports from all over the people that were praying fervently for me. I was so moved and I continue. I am so moved by your prayers, by the constant prayers of many. Uh, not just in this body. Yeah, people in this body. And I, I know many of you personally, we've talked about it. But, but I got one email from a guy that oversees the Calvary Chapels. For, he said there are pastors in churches all over Oregon that are fervently praying for your healing. And folks, I don't think that there's any mistake that I'm sitting here today. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. I talked about that last time a couple of weeks ago, that I don't think there's any mistake that I was that far gone, dead in a parking lot, and that the prayers of the people, I mean, were going up. And one of the first things my wife did was appeal for prayer. And, and I cannot stress that enough. We're going to talk about what a fervent prayer life looks like towards the end of the message today. But you got to know that prayer moves things in the spiritual realm. You got to know that it's just simply an act of obedience. You got to know that, yeah, he wants our petitions. And these people are petitioning God on Peter's behalf. They're interceding for him, praying on behalf of another's intercessory prayer. Petitioning is asking God, begging God, please do something in this situation. You know, we don't want to see this guy get executed the same way as we saw James. And so, their hearts are oriented towards prayer here. They are driven to prayer. And the, the church is getting together. We're going to see they're praying all night for this situation. But constant prayer is totally the hinge point of this entire chapter. Offer to God for him, for Peter, by the church. Verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains, between two soldiers. So get the picture here. 
This guy is not just heavily guarded, he is chained to these guys. I mean, as I mentioned, they're not taking any chances with him. They're making sure that there is absolutely no human way, I want to underscore that, that he can get out of there. Herod wants to make an example of him, and he is going to be sure, as sure as he can be, with 16 men guarding him at various times of the day, that he can't do anything. So he's bound between, uh, with chains uh, between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison, or guarding the prison. So he's got two layers of guards that are overseeing this thing. And again, four guys, three-hour shifts each, because dividing the night into the four watches, it, was, it started at 6 p.m., 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, 3 to 6. This would be at the fourth watch, and we'll see, because when things unfold, we see that morning comes before we're through with this chapter. I think it's interesting, too. Have you ever noticed that God is seldom early, but he's never late? He's seldom early. I mean, how many times has it gotten to where, and I don't know about you, but in my life where there's some cliffhanger situation that's come up and it's like, oh God, please, you know, and you're just pouring your heart out and you're asking him to intervene and all of that. And at the last moment, something breaks loose. God moves. He responds. Until then, he allows us sometimes to become very uncomfortable. In verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and light shone in the prison. So all of a sudden, poof, there's this angel that shows up in his cell. Doesn't say he walked in. And the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the, the glory of God, which is what the light is here, I'm convinced, shows up illuminating the cell, and the soldiers evidently are dead asleep. We see that Peter's going <laughs> to, we see him as being dead asleep as well. And that it says that the angel struck Peter on the side and raised him up. Now, Peter is that sound asleep. And I looked it up in the original language. When he struck him, <laughs> in our vernacular, we'd say he smacked him good. I mean, he hit him hard. And, and I mean, Peter's in this sound sleep. And, and it, again, it begs the question, how could Peter, knowing that the feast is about over, it ended last night, they're going to come and drag me out of here first thing in the morning and take off my head. How could he be sleeping? How could he be sleeping, not just sleeping, but sleeping soundly? And I think that there's a couple of things that come into play with that. Number one, he was there on the lake when Jesus was sleeping soundly. Remember, the storm came up and these all these grown fishermen guys were freaked out. They were totally beside themselves because they, they were going to sink and I know it. And Jesus has got his head on a pillow in the back of the boat, snoozing away gets up, stretches, rebukes the sea, and begins to teach the guys what it is to simply believe. So there's that. The other thing is in John chapter 21, when, when Jesus had, he had risen from the dead, 
And the guys had said, and Peter himself had said, I'm going fishing. He was supposed to tarry in Jerusalem. He didn't. And that wasn't a recreational outing. That was a career choice. I'm going back to the nets. And the other guys said, yeah, we'll go too. (laughs) Not much happening here. We're waiting here in this upper room for something. And so they're there, they fish all night, they've caught nothing, and then they hear some guy call to them from the shore, and they look, and there's fish on a fire, and Jesus is standing there. Peter, what does he do? He throws on his outer tunic and dives into the lake. And Jesus has some interesting things to say to him there. And he tells Peter at that point, look, I'm going to use you. I'm going to, I'm going to use you. And he, and he restores Peter, but then he goes on to say some interesting things. Uh, in, in John 21, 18 and 19, Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, uh, and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Peter's not old here. This is only about 11 years out from the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Peter would go on for 20 plus years after this before he would be, and he would be executed. He would be taken where he didn't want to go. This, the word that Jesus gave him there at the, the Sea of Galilee would be carried out to the letter. But I believe that Peter not only had confidence because he had seen Jesus in the back of the boat in in a terrible time, but I also believe that he had confidence because he knew that his time was not yet. And folks, I'm telling you, I don't understand it. And we'll talk about it again towards the end of the message. But I don't understand it why one person's time is sooner it was James's time was sooner. I don't understand why, and I don't understand. It's the sovereignty of God. I don't understand why James was spared, or James was executed and Peter was spared. Got that backwards. I don't understand it. But I do understand that until God is finished with us, the Bible tells us no weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. There is no way that your life can be forfeit before God is done. And we'll talk about that a bit more as we go. But truly, uh, Peter here has great confidence, or he would not have been snoozing as hard as he was to the point where the angel has to literally smack him in the side and say, get up, get dressed, and get going. Because, and and uh, One of the things about this angel, too, we'll see, as we go through this, is that he's not a real polite guy. I mean, he's just pretty rough. And, and he doesn't say please and thank you. He just definitely doesn't fit the mold of, you know, he's got a harp and some wings and all of that folklore stuff we think about when we think of angels. He's, he's pretty hammered down with Peter. And, and, and Peter comes to understand that pretty quickly. So it says in verse 7 again, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side, raised him up saying, arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. He didn't unlock them. I don't know if the, if, if it was the, 
manacles that they use or what, if they just fell through his wrists or they opened up. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us that he's no longer chained. And that's important. And the angel said to him, gird yourself. That's an interesting Bible term. What it means is get dressed. Okay. He says, gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And so he did. Now, Peter, he was sleeping so soundly that he is just like in this goofy state in his mind. And, and, and the text bears that out here in a couple of verses. He's just like, um, okay, uh, has anybody ever woke you out of a dead sleep and you're just kind of going through the motions? It happens to me all the time. So he says, gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So Peter gets dressed. Now, when, when he girds himself, when he puts on his garment, uh, you got to realize they didn't have like, you know, underwear and t-shirts and jeans and all of that. They had an inner tunic, which was like underwear. It was like, it was just a, a light cloth tunic that they slept in. Evidently, Peter made himself comfortable that night. Because he's not got his outer tunic on. Now, an outer tunic was kind of like a robe. But what they had to do when they girded themselves was they had to take, because you can't move quickly with this robe thing tripping you up as you go. So they would have a sash. There was a belt on this thing. And so he would put his outer tunic on and then gather the the tunic up, gather the, the cloth up and tuck it into the belt. Now he's ready to move. All right. So the angel is giving him specific instruction to do that. So he went out and he followed him. He didn't know what was done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. He is still asleep. He's trying to figure out, all right, I'm laying there. I'm between these two guards. I, you know, if it's the Lord's will that my days are done here in the morning, then I guess that's what's going to happen. I'm just going to trust the Lord because it's not fitting what Jesus told me back on the Sea of Galilee. But he's in a real sleepy, kind of a dreamy state here. This all starts happening. Nobody, we read this. He lived it. And as he's living it, as this is unfolding, he's like, I don't know if this is real. I pinch myself. I don't know what's going on here. Is this a vision? In verse 10, it says, when they passed the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Now, of its own accord is the same root word. It's where we get the word automatic. All right. This is like going to Fred Meyer. Well, probably not. But, you know, you go, you get up near the door and it, you know, and it just opens. Well, <laughs> this is a big iron gate. It's not Fred Meyer. But it's a big, huge iron gate. And now archaeologists have uncovered that this is probably taking place in what was known as the Antonia Fortress, right? On the northeast or the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, there was a large fortress where the Roman troops were stationed. There were two gates there. One gate led to the temple courts because they would go in and they would be able to police the Temple Mount. Another gate led to the streets of the city. And, and so that's the gate that they're going through. They, and if the Romans built an iron gate, you're not getting through it. And yet the thing just swings open automatically. 
So it opens to them of its own accord, and they went out, and they went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. No fanfare. No, hey, good luck. See you later. The angel just says, he's done with his mission, and he's out of there. So now Peter's on his own. And when Peter had come to himself, now I like that. That reminds me, there's another instance of where someone comes to himself. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. He's out there and he's bipping along, living for himself, blowing his inheritance with wine, women, and whatever in a far country. And he gets to the end of his money and the end of his friends because... (laughs) When his money ran out, so did his friends. And he realizes, I'm here eating pig food. And my father's servants are eating better than I am. His slaves back home. And it says there, and he came to himself. In other words, the lights came on. And he realized, boy, this is not the place to be. So Peter's here. He's waking up now. And he comes to himself. He says, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Aha! I'm not in jail. I know that God has done something very significant here. I'm awake. I'm free. It's still dark. I need to get out of here and go find some place to get away from the streets because all it would take would be a a patrol to come by and to recognize him. He comes to himself. He realizes that it was the hand of God. Have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever just been going along and you come to yourself? It's like you have this, this aha moment. You have this epiphany. Wow, this is the hand of God. I've had some recently. Shared them with you. It's a wonderful moment. Hang on to those. I, I think back to when Joshua and, and, and Israel crossed the Jordan River after they wandered around for 40 years out in the wilderness. And they had that aha moment because God had stopped the river and they walked across on dry ground. And they were so blown away that and there were two sets of rocks. Remember that, Chuck? That, that, that God said, you know what? Make a memorial to me. And I don't want you to build a shrine. How about a pile of rocks? That'll do it. So that for generations to come, people can come and they can see there's one stack of stones in the river. There's another stack of stones at Gilgal, the town adjacent. That it would be a memorial to God and his faithfulness forever. This is kind of a, a, a memorial to Peter in his own heart as to what God was doing. You know, think about it, guys. Peter saw that James had been executed as well. He also saw that he'd been put in this jail by Herod to await his... He is, he's going to get executed. He's going to get beheaded. And he's probably thinking along those lines too. And he gets out. This angel breaks him out miraculously out of this heavily fortified jail takes him right through the gates, out into the city streets, the angel's gone, and Peter's got some time now to kind of slow down and think about it. Ah, God did this. 
He delivered me from the hand of Herod. Again, the projection of power. And also from the expectation of the Jewish people. The people, the Jews want me dead. They see me as a threat to them. They see the way, the church as a threat to Judaism. And they have sworn themselves to be enemies of the church. And now God has done this. And verse 12 says that, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. There's that word again. These people were huddled up. I mean, again, this is the fourth watch of the night. This is somewhere between three and six in the morning. And these people are not snoozing. They are there gathered together and they are having a prayer meeting. And no doubt they're praying for Peter and he gets to the house. Now it talks about Mary, uh, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Now this is John Mark. We'll see more of him as we study the book of Acts because he ends up going on uh, a journey with Paul and Barnabas. And then Paul and Barnabas have this big split because John Mark abandons them, goes back to Jerusalem. And then Barnabas wants to include him again later on. And Paul says, uh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. They have a falling out. So Barnabas goes off with John Mark and Paul goes off with Silas. And again, we'll see that in coming chapters. And what happens is the work doubles down. And now there are two teams because of their disagreement, because of their falling out. God uses the craziest things sometimes. So anyway, we see John Mark introduced here. Now, John Mark also is Barnabas' nephew. I mean, no, it's his cousin. Yeah, Colossians chapter 4 tells us that John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. Now, he would have been, Barnabas would have been Mary's nephew. So he goes, it doesn't tell us in the text here. We know that Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem because they're bringing the offering, right? In the days of Claudius and all of that. So we know that they're there. Now it would make sense to me that Paul and Barnabas would go where the church was. And where the church was, was at Mary's house. And Barnabas' Aunt Mary and his cousin John Mark would have been there. So we can presume that Paul and Barnabas are here at this prayer meeting. They don't have anything to say. The spotlight's not on them at this point. It will be after this. But right now, we can assume that here's the, the who would become the great apostle Paul. Watching, praying seeing how these people interact with each other, understanding, learning as he goes, the Holy Spirit speaking to him, showing him the importance of prayer. Paul would go on in 2 Corinthians when he wrote that second letter to the church at Corinth and say, look, you got to understand the weapons of our warfare. They are not carnal, but they're spiritual and they're mighty for the tearing down of strongholds. That's what's going on here. And he would be learning these things as he goes. Folks, I was talking to somebody recently about the difference between being a pupil, being book smart, and being a disciple, which is very much more like being an apprentice. I I came up in the trades. I came up in the sign trade. And I served an apprenticeship 
Before I became a journeyman sign painter, this is back when we actually painted signs instead of had computers to cut vinyl stickers. But I came up in the trades and I served an apprenticeship. That's very much more like what it is to be a disciple than it is to, I didn't go to school and just study books on how to do what I did. And when the Lord calls us to become part of his kingdom, when he calls us to be part of the church, he doesn't call us to just go and be, be book smart. He calls us to walk it out. That's why we're doing this thing with the men tomorrow night. That's why we emphasize discipleship here to the degree that we do. Because to be a disciple is to be walking it out. To be a disciple is to, yes, there's a place where we study. Yes, we come together here on Sunday morning to study God's word. But folks, I call this the huddle. We run the plays Monday through Saturday. We're out there dealing with a hostile world and growing more hostile all the time. So the question becomes, am I a pupil or am I a disciple? And it's something that uh, I believe the Holy Spirit would probe each of our hearts to answer. So Peter gets there. He gets to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname is Mark. And many were gathered together there praying. And Peter knocked at the, the door of the gate. And a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, Rhoda is another, the, the English translation for Rhoda is Rose. Or we might call her Rosie. She was probably a servant in the house, which would indicate that Mary had some means of income. All right, the church is meeting there. Mary probably has a large dwelling where there where a lot of people can get together. Uh, the church was meeting in houses at that time. They didn't have buildings like we do. They were they would get together in houses. And again, somewhere between three and six in the morning, Peter gets to the gate. He knocks on the gate, and this young girl Rhoda or Rosie comes out to meet him. Says that when she recognized Peter's voice. In verse 14, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. I just love the humanity of this. It's like, Peter! And by the way, she recognized his voice. Do you remember the last time that somebody recognized Peter's voice? There when Peter was outside the high priest's house. Jesus had been arrested. He's warming his hands by the enemy's fire and he says something And a girl, a young girl, recognizes his voice as being that of a Galilean. As I mentioned, these guys were kind of looked on as kind of the hicks from the north. Galilean accent would have been very distinct. I don't know if she recognizes Peter's voice because she had heard him and talked to him before. Or if she recognized this is a Galilean guy. It'd be like, you know, somebody that shows up at your house from Alabama or from Bama. (laughs) There's a distinct accent that comes with it. Doesn't tell us which, but she recognizes this is Peter. And she gets so excited, and I love the way this plays out. She gets so excited, she throws the gate open. No, she gets so excited, she runs back in the house. <laughs> and she doesn't open the gate. She ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, you're beside yourself. In other words, thou art crazy. In other words, in those days, when they talked about somebody being beside themselves, it'd be sort of like somebody that you might see that's having a conversation with an invisible person. Not a good thing to do. Uh, 
yeah, yeah, anyway, I could go off on that. I'm not going to. But the point is they say, you're nuts. You're crazy, Rosie. (laughs) You're seeing things. You know, no, 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 you're beside yourself. She kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, oh, it's his angel. Now, in those days, Jewish folklore said that each person had a guardian angel and that angel could manifest with the visage and look like the person that they were guarding. Even sound like them. So they're saying, oh, no, 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 it's not Peter. It's his guardian angel. Now, you got to remember, this is a prayer meeting. They're praying for Peter. He's at the gate. They're thinking he's done. We saw what happened to James. And they're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. He's down at the fortress, under guard, going to be executed probably this morning. And we're begging God to intervene. Uh, And the question comes to me, did they really think that God would? How many times have you or I prayed and we prayed kind of thinking, got that thing in the back of our heads like, yeah, well, I'm going to pray because I want to be obedient, but I really don't see how God's going to do this. I really don't understand how this is going to work out. Well, that's what's going on with these people. They're, they're saying, no, 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 it's his angel. So now Peter continued knocking. <laughs> when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. So Peter's thinking, all right, I got to get in here. I can't be seen out here on the street. How is it that I can come out of the strongest prison cell in the city and I can't get into a prayer meeting? It's like, come on, guys, open the gate. (laughs) It's me. So he continues knocking. They open and and they see him and they're blown away. They're like, but we were just praying. But aren't you supposed to? This isn't making sense. So they're astonished and they start getting vocal about it. Wouldn't you? I was just praying for you to get out. Now, here you are. And you're just going through this whole deal. And Peter has to shush them. All right. And, and that's not a biblical term, but it's exactly what he has to do. It says in verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So he's going, all right, guys, cool it. I mean, it's still dark. You're making a lot of noise. Perhaps the lamps are getting lit in in neighbor's houses. We don't know. But Peter doesn't want to have a spectacle out here in front of the gate. He's still on the street. And the people are out there now. They're gathering outside the house. And and they're astonished. They're, They're blown away. And he has to say, hold it, hold it. It says that he takes his hand and he calms them down. He essentially, like I said, he shushes them. Tells them about what God had done. I can imagine, I can only imagine how their hearts would have soared. We thought you were a goner, Pete. We didn't think we'd ever see you again. I would imagine there were tears. I would imagine that there was great joy. I would imagine that there was no small amount of consternation as they're astonished. They're, this doesn't happen, but it does happen. All things are possible when God's involved, when he's working his purposes thought about that. I thought about the iron gates that swung open automatically. And I thought, how many times have I had iron gates in my life where something looked insurmountable, 
where something looked, there's no way that this is going to work out. There's, where something looked futile, absolutely futile in human terms. And in human terms, Peter's condition, Peter's pending execution was certain. It wasn't God's will. It wasn't God's will. We face things, folks. Sometimes it looks futile. Sometimes it's just plain hard. Sometimes there are high emotions in play. Sometimes it's just we're just in a whole bunch of hurt. These are people that loved Peter. These are people that cared about Peter. They cared about James. And at this point, they've got to be scratching their heads saying, why is it? How is it that James is dead and Peter stands before us? So he tells them, the Lord brought him out. And then he says, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So now the James is referred to here. This is most likely Jesus's half-brother, James. We're told that his brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection and that they did at that point in James, who also writes the epistle of James back towards the back of the New Testament, was Jesus's own brother, half-brother, uh, born of Mary and Joseph, and Jesus obviously Mary and the Holy Spirit. But the point is, is that this is James, Jesus' brother, who had risen to a prominent place in the church in Jerusalem as well. And so Peter says, look, go tell the other leaders about this because they're going to be thinking that I'm doomed as well. It says, and then Peter departed and went to another place. Now, this is the end of it in the book of Acts for Peter. He shows up once in chapter 15. There had been a big dissension about uh, if the Gentiles needed to carry out the, the Jewish law, if they needed to be circumcised and all of that. And, and so they convene a council at Jerusalem and, they, and the, the apostles sort of decide the case. Peter's name is mentioned once there, but he is off the scene. Now, he would have a large ministry for years to come. He would travel and he would be greatly used of God in bringing the gospel to different ones. He would write a couple of powerful, powerful letters. I look at Peter when he's hanging around with Jesus and, you know, sort of open mouth, insert foot Peter. And I look at the, the, the just the, the, tremendous spiritual maturity in First and Second Peter as he would write those things out towards the end of his life. Oh, God's not finished with Peter. He's just finished with Peter here in the book of Acts because as I mentioned, the scene now will pivot and it will shift to the Gentiles and to the ministry of Paul, uh, the apostle. So uh, it says that he went off to another place. We don't know where that was, but we know that that was it. Then as soon as it was day and there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had happened, what had become of Peter, you can bet that that was the case. Now, there was a Roman law, uh, I think it was called the Rule of Justinian, that said if you were guarding someone and they got away, you would have to carry the penalty that was assigned to that person. In other words, if they were going to do six months and they got away, guess who's doing six months? Except it's not six months here. Peter is under a death sentence. 
So when it says there was no small stir among the soldiers, you better believe there was no small stir. These guys were upset. They were frantic. What happened to Peter? I don't know. He was chained to me and he was chained to my buddy. And all of a sudden he's gone. I don't know. I was standing outside the door the whole time. It doesn't tell us that the angel unlocked the door. Maybe they just walked through. We don't know. What we do know, Peter was gone. And when, and when day broke, there was no small stir. In other words, that's, that's just the English way of saying they were in a dead panic to try to figure it out. There was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod uh, had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and he commanded that they be put to death. You get Peter's sentence. And then from there, it says that Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Yeah, he definitely would not. His, his pride must have been terribly wounded at this very prideful man. We'll see that in a moment. But he takes off and he goes down to Caesarea. Now down, Caesarea is actually sort of north and it's along the coast. Caesarea Maritima, one of the great cities that his grandfather had built, uh, Beautiful place, beautiful ruins. Uh, Stacy and I stood on the field of the, the theater there where Agrippa would have come out. We'll look at that in a minute. And, and it was just amazing kind of reliving all that. By the way, there's another Agrippa in Acts 25 and 26. That's this guy's son, Agrippa II. And he is the one that is responsible for making it possible for the Apostle Paul to appeal his case to Rome because he would not be held under Jewish law because he was a Roman citizen. Agrippa would be the one that would examine Paul when Paul was taken to Caesarea in chains and then shipped off from there to Rome after he had spent a couple of years in Caesarea. So this place plays a, a prominent part. The Herods loved it there. It was sort of their summer palace. They would they, go to the beach. Well, at this point, Agrippa is humiliated. And he knows that he had been trying to curry favor with the Jews. They're not going to be happy about Peter getting away. So he just leaves. Because now he can go live like a Roman. When he was in Jerusalem, he'd live like a Jew, but he was also a Roman and he loved to live like a Roman. And we'll see that as we wrap up this morning. So in verse 20, it says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre and Sidon were, were they were cities along the coast north of Caesarea in what would now be Lebanon, all right, on the Mediterranean coast. Tyre and Sidon had a long history of being enemies of Israel. Uh, going all the way back to Joshua's conquest of the land when they divided up the land and they didn't take Tyre and Sidon and they became a snare to the Israelites after that. Well, they they had sort of developed this love-hate thing. Jesus prophesied about Tyre and Sidon. He said, you know, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You know, if the people of Tyre and Sidon had heard the gospel the way that it's been preached to you, they would have repented. Uh, and he talks about these two cities, saying they're godless places. But even they would have responded to the to the gospel, to the word of salvation. And, and, and you're not, as he prophesies against these other cities. Well, 
So these same cities, we don't know why Herod was irritated with them, but he was. And they come, <laughs> I don't think, of, there's not a better way to say it, they come to suck up. All right? They, they, wanna, they want Herod's favor. <laughs> and so uh, it says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country supplied uh, was supplied with food by the king's country. Oh, king, we just love you. You're so wonderful. You're so beneficial to us. We just think that you're the most wonderful guy ever. We need food. It's essentially what's going on here. And and by the way, your your personal aide, your buddy, he's our buddy. So you should be our buddy too. <laughs> That's what's being said. All right, verse 21, it says, so, they, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Oh, Herod, you are so stinking wonderful. And Herod eats it up. He eats it up. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Now, this is a different kind of striking. I looked up a different Greek word than smacking Peter in the side. This is a mortal blow, okay? This is, you're going to be stricken with disease. You're going to be stricken and die, all right? And I don't know if it's the same angel that Pete was with earlier, but we know that this is a powerful angel because it says he struck him because he didn't give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, isn't that a picture? I got a, a short description. This is from a Jewish historian. He was a secular historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. Uh, and he recorded a lot of information, extra biblical information. But this is what he has to say about when Herod came out there in the arena at Caesarea Maritima and began to make this oration, this rosy speech to the people from Tyre and Sidon. Josephus says he put on a garment made wholly of silver. And that would be heavy. It would be silver thread, wholly of silver. And that contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh <coughs> reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in the most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. That's from Josephus. In other words, Herod meets his end, and it's not a good one. And, and folks, there are three different explanations for why Herod died. One, the angel struck him. Two, he got worms. Three, and the one I believe it is, is God was taking care of it. God will not share his glory with another, period. 
We were never created. We do not, as human beings, we cannot contain glory. It is our place to give glory to him, to shine the light on him, never to shine the light on ourselves. And what Herod did here, and it was to his own demise, was he said, look at me. Look at me. I'm a God. You guys say so, so it must be true. In my fine silver outfit that the sun is reflecting off of and people are in awe over. Big lesson for us. I want to wrap up here with three questions. Oh, also verse 25 and Barnabas, or verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. So Herod goes down, the word of God goes up. All right? Understand that. God is doing his work through these events. This is not second guessing. This is not happenstance. This is not coincidental. God is allowing these things to take place, whether it is, is James's death or Peter's being spared. God is allowing it. This is divine providence here. This is sovereign work. God is sovereign. In other words, he is separate from and above us. And he will do what he is going to do. That we don't understand it. That it really hurts sometimes because, Lord, I, I don't understand. It doesn't change the fact that he is working for our good. Now Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they took with them uh, John, whose surname was Mark. So Barnabas, after the work is done in Jerusalem, Peter is free. Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch. And that's where chapter 13 begins with Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. But now they've got John Mark with them. And soon they will launch out on Paul's first missionary journey. So as we wrap up, though, I want to ask three questions. The first is why was James martyred and Peter set free? And as I mentioned, I freely confess to you, I have no clue other than it was the sovereign hand, the divine providence of God. Now there's a hint in Isaiah 57, verse 1, says this, it says, the righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away. The, the word taken away there means, literally means gathered. They're gathered together by God. Merciful men are gathered by God. And no one considers that the righteous is gathered away from evil or taken away from evil. King James renders that the evil to come. Interesting. Sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes it's a child. Sometimes it's someone that you think, God, I have no idea what you're doing, but this just does not look good. This hurts. I remember my son when his sister, when my, when my daughter went to heaven in 2009, he came to me. He said, Dad, I am really wrestling. I said, what do you mean? He said, I have daughters and I'm learning something about God that I've never, that I don't want to learn because if he could take my sister away, your daughter, what could he do with my kids? And I said, son, that's a fair question. That's a fair, that's an honest response. Because our, our emotions are involved. And you know what? I'm not going to sit here and sound all spiritual and say, yeah, well, it just, we just dealt with it. No, it hurt. I have never hurt so badly in my life. And yet I know that God is good. I know that he gathers. 
I know that he takes the harvest. He reaps the harvest from this earth every day. And that we don't understand it doesn't mean that that his motives aren't absolutely pure. So why did he take James, spare Peter? I don't know. Perhaps there was something in James's future that was so awful that he gathered him ahead of time. The second question I want to ask is what or who was so important that these men risked everything? Think about it. We're sitting here in a, in a warm building, Sunday morning. Nothing wrong with that. Many places on this earth, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, many places, it costs everything to name the name of Christ. I think about some of the African countries, Nigeria, greater number of people forfeiting their lives to crazy radical Muslims than in every other, every other country on earth combined, thousands. And I'm not saying that to, to play on your emotions, to make you feel bad. We live where we live. But what was it that count, caused these men to count the cost and to say, I'm in? What about if things get really sideways here? The, oh, you mean the government could come against the church like they did here? Yeah, it's already started. It's already started. It's here. Hasn't gained a lot of momentum yet. But you think about, you look at the condition that this, that our culture, that this planet is in, and you think about, could I have seen this two and a half years ago? Not on your life. Count the costs. These guys counted the cost and they said, I'm in. It is absolutely worth it. There is work to be done. The gospel has to go out. People's lives are literally forfeit if they don't respond to the love of God being shed abroad in my heart and yours. Who do you know that needs Christ? Do you have a sense of urgency? If you don't, my friend, my brother, my sister, you should. It's that important. The third thing I want to bring out as we, as we wrap up is what does a fervent prayer life look like? Now, I could go on and and say, well, we'll continue this next week and I'm going to teach you all about prayer. No, I just did. What a fervent prayer life looks like is these people who are, they're, yeah, they're committed. They're all in. They are fervently praying. They're praying all night. But they don't really believe in in many of their hearts that, that God's going to do something. Peter's behind bars. James is dead. What a fervent prayer looks like is I'm committed to pray. It, Romans chapter 8 is clear. It says, you know what? We don't pray the way that we ought to. The Spirit of God understands our weaknesses and He gives us the prayer. He intercedes with groanings too deep for words because we don't pray as we ought. So, <coughs> so is a fervent prayer life something where I've got it all worked out in my head and I know how to say the right things. Something that makes me mildly bonkers as a pastor is when somebody says, well, why don't you pray? You pray a lot better than I do. And I want to say, what are you talking about? You don't have, all you have to do is pour it out to God. And sometimes, I mean, I was in a jail one time when there was about to be a riot with the prisoners and all I could pray was, Lord, Lord, 
Oh, Lord. I mean, these guys were getting ready to go at it. <coughs> my point is, <coughs> my point is I can't talk. <coughs> oh. Two more minutes out of it. <coughs> My point is, I love having COVID. It's all gone. <coughs> Just got leftovers. A fervent prayer life looks like you're committed to pray. You don't have to say the right stuff. You, you don't. Ah. <coughs> <coughs> uh. All right. I'm so glad this is on camera. <laughs> Live stream my snot all over the internet. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> you get my point. To pray fervently is to be committed to prayer. Don't worry about the form. Don't worry about the syntax. The Lord, the Holy Spirit will perfect our prayers. But he does say, be committed to prayer. And if there's anything we see here with these people, they, they're blown away that Peter's out of jail. They're praying for Peter to be out of jail, and then they're blown away that he is. But they're committed. They're all in. That's for prayer. It's not, you've got it all down. It's you're just willing to pour it out to God. Let's pray. <laughs> I'll try to pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for... Uh, your word and for this chapter in Acts that uh, just so rich, so many lessons. Just pray for each one here, Father, that as we wrap up this morning, that you would instruct us as your disciples, as your apprentices, as we're learning the ropes of the kingdom, that you would stir our hearts, that you would give us a, a hunger and a thirst for you, for the things of your kingdom. So God, I just pray for each one here. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, Father, that today would be the day that they would understand the love of God poured out on that cross as Jesus went in our place. And that there's a life that comes through the power of the resurrection, through your Holy Spirit, that's only available to those who believe. So I pray, Father, for those here, for those online, that might be watching, that you would work, that you would perfect your work in us, Lord. Uh, we're broken people living in a broken world, and yet, Lord, you've opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel, and we praise you for it. So do that work in us. We invite you to do that. In Jesus' name.